You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode was revised, re-recorded, and produced according to my higher standards in 2024 around seven years after the original episode was produced. It's now more representative of the kind of work you'll eventually find that I produce for the podcast. So if, after listening to this episode, you find you dislike the content, voiceovers, choice of background music, or the audio mix of other early episodes, and the background music was definitely too loud on some early ones, feel free to skip ahead to episodes from 2018 or 2019 when you can expect far better quality. In the mid-16th century, as King Philip II oversaw his expanding Spanish empire with its stranglehold on the Americas, he saw little reason to expand his colonial presence into eastern North America, The native resistance he'd encountered in Florida had been fierce, and the land did not seem as promising as their holdings elsewhere, which had proven rich in gold or fertile for the cultivation of sugar. As empires abhor a vacuum and swiftly move to fill them, the east coast of what is now the United States was at the time a tempting prize for potential rivals of Spain. First, the French made some attempts to establish a colonial foothold in the area, and then Queen Elizabeth's England undertook their own colonial ventures there. There were numerous strategic reasons for these endeavors. Establishing a base there would give them some naval advantage if and when war with Spain finally came. Because even if the Spanish had no interest in settling that coast, they regularly sailed up it on the Gulf Stream to bring their new world wealth back to the royal coffers. And even in the absence of war, such a base would prove lucrative for the purposes of piracy, as the Queen's privateers could seize Spanish treasure galleons as they passed. But there were further draws for the colonial settlement of North America. As far as the English knew, the native inhabitants might be rich in gold, as had elsewhere in the New World been the case. Gold fever was, after all, the principal drive that brought Europeans here, as was the belief that a passage might be found to the South Sea or the Pacific, 
as such a navigable shipping route would prove even more priceless than gold. Early visitations to the coast of what are today the American states of North Carolina and Virginia revealed a narrow set of barrier islands that we call the Outer Banks, beyond which could be seen vast bodies of water, Pamlico Sound, Albemarle Sound, and Chesapeake Bay farther north. Surely it seemed this was the mouth of the passage they sought, so it would be here, upon a small island just inside the Outer Banks, that the first English colony in the New World would be established, under a charter granted by Queen Elizabeth to the English conquistador Sir Walter Raleigh, her favorite, the rumored lover of a queen that was said to still be a virgin. Raleigh wooed Elizabeth with promises of naval superiority and New World wealth, and flattered her by saying that this reportedly beautiful land should be called Virginia, named after her, the Virgin Queen. So in 1584, Elizabeth granted him what would essentially be a fiefdom, allowing him to govern any English lands settled in North America like a feudal lord, so long as he succeeded in settling them by 1591. Within months, the first expedition sailing under Raleigh's patent reached the coast where today we memorialize the establishment of the first colony at Roanoke, which, as most people know, seems to have disappeared without any trace, except for the enigmatic word Croatoan left carved into a post, a word that has taken on sinister connotations and, much like the fate of the Roanoke colonists themselves, has become mythologized. This is historical blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and like the colony itself, which no longer exists except in reenactments and restorations, this is a revision and update to my original first episode of the podcast, The Lost Colony, Part 1, The Secret Token. Before we begin the episode, as I always do in more recent episodes, I want to thank my patrons on Patreon for their support of the podcast. Typically, this is where I thank new patrons by name, but since I'll be inserting this into my main feed as the first episode, I'll just say here that the patronage on Patreon has made it possible for me to continue producing this program, which I research, write, record, edit, mix, and master all by myself. Patreon support has helped me to earn a bit of remuneration for all the time I spend on the podcast, far more than any ad revenue has done. And it's so very satisfying to know that there are devoted listeners out there who want to support my work on this project. It's the least I can do to give something back. So Patreon supporters get an ad-free feed, they get episodes early, plus I'll usually share teasers for upcoming episodes and they receive fully produced exclusive episodes about 10 to 15 minutes in length between most episode releases, making this a weekly podcast for Patreon supporters. Head over to patreon.com slash historical blindness and consider supporting for as little as a buck a month. Now, on with this completely rewritten and re-recorded first episode of the podcast.
welcome to Historical Blindness. Any new listeners who have started the podcast on episode one, I want to make it clear that what you're listening to is a completely new and updated version of an episode I originally wrote and recorded in late 2016. When I first started this podcast, I was envisioning it as a way to promote a historical novel I had self-published. The book, Manuscript Found, is a skeptical and rationalist telling of the story of the founding of Mormonism. And I had the idea that I could explore similar stories that dealt with hoaxes and dubious pseudo-history, and along the way recommend that listeners download my book. Well, cut to today, 2024, more than 100 episodes later, and the podcast has taken on a life of its own, becoming my principal outlet for research and writing and the expression of my thoughts on not just history, but also religion and modern politics and conspiracy theory. The podcast was leaning in this direction from the beginning, as the very first episode I ever published was a comparison between then-presidential candidate Donald Trump and 19th-century nativist demagogue Louis Charles Levin. I have since taken that episode down, though you can still find its blog post on the website, and patrons have access to it as a re-release in their feeds. Mostly I took it down because I found its explicitly political themes turned off some listeners who were trying the podcast for the first time. Though any new listeners should be aware that in numerous later episodes, I don't shrink from the lessons that history has to teach us about modern day political ideologies. History is inextricable from politics in my view and provides the most informative lessons for addressing topics of the day. However, I also cover a ton of topics that don't touch on politics or religion at all. Some of these simply deal with hoaxes, conspiracy theories, events that historians tend to disagree on, and historical mysteries. When I started, it was the historical mysteries, the things we don't really have a strong scholarly consensus on, that interested me most. And that was why I chose the story of the lost colony of Roanoke. That, and because the second part of the story involves a hoax having to do with fraudulently carved stones that reminded me a bit of the story of Mormonism. In fact, you'll find a great deal of episodes in the podcast about hoaxes involving carved stones that are claimed to be historical evidence for something that did not actually happen. At the time when I wrote the original episode, though, I thought that a big part of the podcast would be demonstrating the blind spots in history, as in showing the unreliability of what history books have to teach us, or the persistent lack of certainty surrounding many historical events that surprisingly still persists. Thus, the name Historical Blindness. As the podcast has evolved, though, and as my own research skills and understanding of historiography has grown, that has not proven to be the case. There was always a strain of skepticism in my views from the beginning, but if you continue to listen, you'll find that my estimation of academic historians and the discipline of scholarly history grows. Today, the podcast focuses on how academic research, reliable evidence, and consensus scholarly views of history can help to bust myths and misconceptions. So it turns out the historical blindness I set out to address is actually the blind spots of popular imagination 
often promoted by people with agendas, either political, religious, or monetary. Going back and rereading this first episode, I couldn't simply re-record it as it was to improve the audio mix, because it's no longer up to my current standards. I had to research it again, which I did, relying mostly on the fantastic book by Andrew Lawler called The Secret Token, Myth, Obsession, and the Search for the Lost Colony of Roanoke that wasn't even published when I wrote the original episode. So I have rewritten this entirely. It is now more representative of the kind of work you'll eventually find that I produce for the podcast. So if after this episode you find that you dislike the content of some early episodes, or you don't like my voiceovers, or my choice of background music, or the audio mix, some of the background music definitely being too loud on early episodes, feel free to skip ahead to episodes from 2018 or 2019, when you can expect far better quality. But now, let's continue and take a far deeper look at the Lost Colony than I originally ever did. The lost colony of Roanoke has become a mainstay of popular culture, especially in the horror genre. Stephen King has a lot to do with that. In his seminal book, It, he describes the original inhabitants of its setting, the New England town of Derry, as having mysteriously disappeared. Additionally, the English word left carved into a post by the lost colonists, Croatoan, which we know was the name of a local tribe of indigenous people, has been transformed in the writing of Stephen King and others into something more demonic. In the television program Supernatural, for example, it is a virus created by a demon. The vanishment of the colony is also cited in horror master Dean Kuntz's novel Phantoms, in which a similar village disappearance is investigated. The TV anthology series American Horror Story once devoted an entire season to the tale, with colonial ghosts haunting reality television crews. And this very week as I wrote this, the fourth season of True Detective Night Country premiered, in which a crew of scientists at a remote Alaskan research facility all vanish, leaving only a cryptic written message behind. The influence is clear. The story is a part of our national mythology, but interestingly, when you talk with people about the lost colony, almost everyone is thinking only of the colonists of 1587, when in fact they were not the first colony to be lost at Roanoke. Before the establishment of the Roanoke colony that we now think of as the lost colony, there had been previous attempts to settle on the same island. Sir Walter Raleigh first dispatched a fleet in 1585 carrying 108 settlers, all men. Along the way, his fleet undertook some raids in the Spanish West Indies. Then, on their way to Roanoke, they first explored the island known as Ocracoke, south of Cape Hatteras. At first, the native tribes there hosted them cordially, but when one indigenous youth took a cup of theirs, likely because he didn't have much of a sense of private property, the Europeans burned a native village to the ground in retaliation 
for the petty theft and took their leave, sailing north to establish their colony on the northern part of Roanoke Island. The head of the fleet granted one Ralph Lane the governorship and thereafter returned to England for resupply. Lane was busy in the absence of the fleet, building a fort somewhere on the eastern coast of the island and exploring the coast of the mainland. Accomplished scientist and ethnographer Thomas Harriot was among them, cataloging the native peoples and plants he observed and mapping the difficult-to-navigate waters of the area. Unfortunately, because of the lateness of the season when they arrived and their unfamiliarity with the land, Lane's colony failed to raise any crops and quickly ran through their provisions, which meant relying wholly on native charity. Luckily, they had two natives with them who had been brought to England by previous visitors and learned to communicate with the Europeans. One of these translators, Mantio, helped to promote good relations with local tribes, while the other, Wanchese, seems to have grown resentful of the English during his stay in London and immediately abandoned them upon his return, gathering other native peoples of the area in opposition to the English. While the colonists survived their first winter on Roanoke, relations with the tribes they depended on for provisions grew strained, and conflict with enemy tribes grew more frequent, such that the colonists' position seemed increasingly tenuous. After a minor clash with one local tribe in May, the English retaliated with a raid in which they overturned canoes and decapitated two natives. This then resulted in open warfare, which concluded with the murder of the tribe's chief, whose head the English put on a pole outside their fort. Still awaiting their resupply nearly a year after the fleet had left Lane's colonists on Roanoke, it was with great relief that they received the news of Sir Francis Drake's formidable fleet laying not far offshore. This was not their resupply. Drake had been raiding the Spanish in the Caribbean. His ships were full of gold and silver and some 1,200 refugees. Moors and West Africans, and natives who had all been Spanish slaves. When Drake landed men on the island, Lane pleaded for aid, suggesting their position among native tribes was untenable, a plea that was carried to Drake. Lane thereafter received two options from Drake, that of accepting one ship and some provisions that would hopefully tide them over until their full resupply arrived, or board the fleet for immediate passage back to England. Governor Lane, not wanting to abandon the colony quite yet, was disposed to accept the ship and the supplies. However, when the first ship Drake offered them, which was smaller and thus thought capable of passing through the outer banks by a certain narrow inlet, attempted to navigate the shallow Roanoke Sound and approach the island, a severe storm hit them, perhaps a hurricane and it was promptly lost. Any other ship Drake might offer would be too large to harbor in their island port and would have to anchor beyond the outer banks, making it indefensible to Spanish attack. So Lane and the rest of his colonists erred on the side of caution and abandoned their colony, 
leaving only three men behind to literally hold the fort. And even more interesting than the fact that a handful of white men were left, perhaps even unintentionally in their eagerness to leave the New World, there's the fact that when Drake finally returned to England, there's no clear record of what happened to many of the slave refugees Drake had aboard his fleet. About a hundred Turks were recorded as having been repatriated, but there is only record of one African arriving with them, which some scholars believe points to the possibility that in order to make room for Ralph Lane's colonists, Sir Francis Drake marooned hundreds of refugees at Roanoke, including Moors from North Africa, West Africans, and South American indigenous people, all of whom had been enslaved by the Spanish. Drake knew that slavery was not common back in England, but he may have believed that slaves could be useful to New World colonists as laborers. Today, with textbook wars in full swing and a culture war that wants to deny the importance of slavery in American history, this is a very intriguing fact. It shows that there may have been plans to rely on the labor of black African slaves even in the very first English colonial venture. And interestingly, these slave refugees represent the first lost colony, as only two weeks after the departure of Drake's fleet, the colony's resupply finally arrived to find the settlement entirely deserted. One Spanish prisoner did later report that the hanged body of an English settler was found, but the reliability of this report is questionable and still does not account for the other two men and the perhaps hundreds of African and South American refugees that seem to have also been left there. Here we see that even the very first colony of Roanoke was lost. Considering the colonists' hostilities with the surrounding native tribes, we might consider these less mysterious circumstances, but still, with no sign of the perhaps hundreds of black and native refugees or the few white settlers left, it remains the first curious vanishment from Roanoke. The resupply ships then left 15 men behind on Roanoke, who likewise would disappear before the arrival of the colonists Americans usually think of when talking about the lost colony of Roanoke. The next colony at Roanoke, the one everyone talks about as lost, was not established for a year. This one was to be governed by John White, who as a young artist had been among Lane's first colony there, drawing sketches of natives and maps according to the cartography of Thomas Harriot. He was certainly an unusual choice for governor, not being a soldier or tested leader, but he had experience and knowledge, and this next colony was not conceived of as a military venture. Instead, it would include women and children, entire families, as the hope was that this would lead to more permanence and encourage the settlers to cultivate the land and get on well with natives in order to ensure their families' health and safety. Among the 150 settlers with whom White sailed across the Atlantic were his own daughter, Eleanor, and his son-in-law, Ananias Dare. The journey to the New World was known to be dangerous, or at least arduous, taking a minimum of six weeks. Therefore, it may seem surprising that White consented to let Ananias bring Eleanor, 
who was pregnant. Though this may seem less surprising when we come to understand that this colonial venture represented a way for ordinary families to find a fresh start and establish a prosperous, idyllic community. It seems to have been a kind of back-to-the-land movement, characterized by the notion of an ideal society, as was made popular in Thomas More's 1516 book, Utopia. If these families truly were inspired not by gold or power, but by the simple wish to better their prospects, then there is a case to be made that this 1587 Roanoke colony better represents the notion of the American dream than even the pilgrims of the Mayflower. But the American dream, as it always does, proved elusive to these settlers, for the obstacles to their success were insurmountable from the beginning. The first was their passage. A trip that should have only taken six weeks took almost three months during the intolerable summer heat. The colonists' intention was to found their utopian city of Raleigh on the Chesapeake Bay, where access by ships of a deeper draft would be more feasible. First, though, they would land on Roanoke to check on the 15 men left behind the previous year. Yet another obstacle to their success occurred then, when it was suddenly revealed to Governor White that the colonists would all be dumped on Roanoke immediately, rather than taking up the Chesapeake. It seems to have come as a surprise, and historians aren't really sure where these orders came from. One conspiracy theory has it that sailors in the fleet were acting on the orders of Sir Walter Raleigh's enemies at court, who didn't want the colony to succeed and believed the colonists would, like all the colonists before them, be slaughtered if left at Roanoke. White seems to have accepted their misfortune meekly, the first of his failures in leadership. Once ashore, no surviving colonists of the 15 previously left behind were found. But the new colonists did discover the skeleton of one man, perhaps the remains of the Englishman previously said to have been found hanging, and the ruins of their fort, which had been burned to the ground. It was assumed then that all the previous colonists had been slayed by quote-unquote savages. Nevertheless, finding the many dwelling places of the previous colonists still standing, as well as melons that had grown abundantly in the settlers' absence and a profusion of wild game, the new expedition was hopeful of success despite the ominous misfortunes that had so far characterized their voyage. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. 
Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. 400 years ago, a trio of tiny kingdoms were perched on some damp islands off the coast of Europe. Within three short centuries, these islands would become the center of an empire which ruled a quarter of the globe, an empire on which the sun never set. Hosted by Dr. Samuel Hume, a historian of the British Empire, Pax Britannica follows the people and events that built that empire into a global superpower. In season one, you can hear about England's first attempts at empire building in Ireland and the New World, and hear about the first steps of the East India Company, as well as the political battles going on between king and parliament. In season two, you can hear about the chaotic years of civil war, revolution, and regicide that rocked those three kingdoms and the fledgling British Empire. Now, in Season 3, you can hear how Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell rules the powerful Commonwealth, battling the Dutch and the Spanish empires for dominance of the Atlantic world. So if you want to learn more about the history of the British Empire, listen to Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link forward slash Pax. Shortly after the new colonists arrived there, some Roanoke natives made it clear that they had not forgotten their conflicts with English invaders the previous year. Coming across one George Howe, an English settler out by himself spearing crabs with a stick, they shot him full of 16 arrows and fell on him with swords of wood, bludgeoning him. Meanwhile, White was busy making peace with the Croatoan tribe that dwelt on a nearby island. Assisting him was the intermediary Mantio, who had chosen to return to London with Lane's colonists the year before and had returned to Roanoke with White. Through Mantio's translation, White learned from the Croatoans that more than one tribe of natives on the mainland formed a coalition and sent assassins to ambush the 15 English settlers left behind on Roanoke the year before. White left the island feeling confident that he had forged an alliance with the Croatoans. After returning to Roanoke and learning of the attack on Howe, White mustered 25 men and led them in an attack on a nearby native village as revenge for Howe's murder. They surprised a group of native men in the village, shot one, and were running off the rest when one of the natives called out to them. It turned out that these were actually not the natives who had attacked Howe. These were their new allies, the Croatoans. Apparently, the Roanoke natives had already fled their village, and these Croatoans were only there gathering what had been abandoned. According to Mantio, the Croatoans forgave the English their mistake. But considering the ensuing events, One wonders whether they might not have nursed a grudge against the new colonists. It was after these events that the terrible truth of their predicament seems to have become clear to them. As their crossing of the Atlantic had taken longer than anticipated, it was already late August and planting season was past. 
they might try to rely on their native neighbors, as had the colony before them, and beg for provisions from their uneasy allies, the Croatoans, but they would be in need of resupply to get through the winter. So Governor White was obliged to again board the fleet of ships whose commanders had betrayed them by insisting they settle on Roanoke rather than up the Chesapeake, and leave his colonists only a little more than a month after arriving. What must have made it especially difficult was that his daughter Eleanor had just given birth to his granddaughter, whom she named Virginia, after their new home. Now White would not only have to leave his daughter behind, but also his baby grandchild on a remote island where indigenous peoples had killed a slew of previous colonists and just days before murdered another. Not only that, but on his own orders, his men had just accidentally murdered one of the only allies they had in this place. And now it seemed he must leave his family behind to sail across the world, not to return for at least three months and likely much longer. Indeed, according to White, he did not want to go, but the colonists insisted, and so he buried some trunks with his sketches and maps, and he left. As he would later reveal, he left his colonists with instructions to leave behind some sign, a quote-unquote secret token, if they had to abandon Roanoke. There had been some talk already of moving 50 miles up the main, end quote, to the mainland on Albemarle Sound. But if plans changed, of course, he would need to know where to find them. They were to leave a message carved for him in wood, stating their destination, and with an added Greek cross to indicate if they had been forced to flee by danger or under duress. Beyond these secret plans, he only left them with a promise to return soon, a promise that, alas, he would find himself unable to keep. War with Spain had become official and the Crown desired that all ships be made available for naval warfare, for the Spanish Armada was extensive and formidable. No matter how he pleaded, White's resupply mission was not approved. The next spring, 1588, the Queen allowed for two small ships that were deemed unnecessary to the war effort to be dispatched to relieve the colonists. But when sailing under the authority of the Crown, Captains of even smaller ships like this apparently could not resist the siren call of the sweet trade, and therefore engaged in piracy, or privateering as it was called when sailing under the auspices of a king or queen. The privateers were in no hurry to get White back to his family, instead spending weeks preying on vulnerable ships. Eventually off the coast of Morocco, their ship itself fell prey, suffering a cannon volley and being boarded by the French. Brutal fighting took place on her decks, and Governor White was lucky to have survived with a sword wound to his head and a gunshot in his buttock. Eventually, both ships limped back to England. While the Anglo-Spanish War raged on throughout that year, the Spanish at one point reconnoitered the island of Roanoke, having intelligence of the English colony there, but spied only the debris on the beach. As this was not the settlement itself, but rather their boat landing, 
This report cannot shed light on whether the colony was still there that July, a year after they had arrived. The Spanish planned to return and attack the colony, but as far as Spanish historical records show, they never actually did so. Meanwhile, back in Britain, White struggled to put a new resupply effort together. Even after the war was officially won, merchant ships were held in port against further Spanish attack. Not until 1590 did White finally manage to get permission for a merchant privateer to carry him back to the colony. And even then, the merchantman who owned the fleet refused to take any other passengers or even any supplies, as his chief interest was the taking of ships and cargo as prizes. It had been two and a half years since White had seen his daughter and granddaughter, and he was anxious to take any opportunity to reach them, even if it meant returning alone and empty-handed. After crossing the Atlantic, the merchant fleet carrying White spent months in the Caribbean privateering, and one can only imagine the impatience and frustration White must have felt, the longest leg of his journey complete, once again back in the New World, and he was still stuck south of Florida while these privateers preyed on vulnerable ships. Finally, almost five months after leaving England, they reached the land called Virginia and the island of Roanoke. Tumultuous weather and the shifting sands of the seafloors in the shallow waters surrounding the outer banks and within the sound beyond made these some of the most treacherous seas in the world, which would come to be known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic. When they finally took boats out to enter Roanoke Sound, one of the fleet's captains drowned with six other men when their boat overturned. In two other boats, White and some other men approached Roanoke at night. They saw a distant light and rowed toward it, blowing a trumpet and singing an English song to announce their arrival in the darkness. They heard no reply. In the morning, they found that the light they'd seen had actually been emitting from a number of trees that had mysteriously been set on fire. They crossed through the burning forest and followed the beach to the settlement White had left in 1587, and as they crested a hill to approach the colony, they found a tree with the letters C-R-O carved into it. They pressed on to the settlement, and they found a palisade of tree trunks that had been placed as posts to form a wall around the dwellings, a fortification against some danger. But the dwelling places themselves within the walls had been dismantled, and to White's disappointment, there was no sign of the settlers, no answer from Ananias or his daughter Eleanor or little Virginia Dare. They searched the settlement. Finding no one, White sought out the chests that he had buried three years earlier and found them exhumed, ransacked, their contents, including his maps and artwork, spread over the ground. Continuing his search, likely in mounting desperation, he looked for some sign the quote-unquote secret token the colonists were supposed to have left behind as an indication of what might have happened to them. Eventually, a clue was discovered. On a post in the palisade, the word Croatoan had been carved, but no cross. To White, this was a glimmer of hope, 
for Croatoan was the ancestral island home of Mantillo, whose people had been a friend to his settlers, even despite the colonists' accidental attack on them. Indeed, the merchant fleet had landed at Croatoan Island briefly before continuing on to Roanoke. So White, probably desperate for some hope, insisted they go back. That was when the overcast sky opened to drop a deluge of rain on them. They rowed back to their fleet, gales of wind threatening to drown them all. The weather would not let up, and their food and water dwindled. The merchant captains insisted they return to the West Indies for provisions before returning to search Croatoan. In the end, though, after being blown off course to the Azores, they simply returned across the Atlantic to Europe. John White was never able to organize another expedition to search for the colonists, and so he went to his grave wondering whatever became of his daughter Eleanor, his son-in-law Ananias, and his granddaughter Virginia Dare. There has been further speculation that perhaps White actually may have found evidence of the colony's destruction, but was encouraged not to report it by Sir Walter Raleigh, as the absence of a successful colony would mean Raleigh's patent would expire in 1591. By this conspiracy theory, then, White's entire account of the secret token carved into the tree might just have been a lie to suggest Raleigh's colony was still out there doing fine when it was not. But with no evidence, this can only be considered a legend, which is common of the lost colony story. While some further genuine clues to the puzzle did turn up over the next couple centuries, as we will see, the lost colony of Roanoke and the fate of Little Virginia Dare became a foundational mystery of the New World, spawning many a legend. A new colonial effort would not be launched until 1607 under King James, and one of its leaders, George Percy, would come to believe that he saw evidence of intermarriage between the vanished English settlers and the natives of the Chesapeake, as he noticed a child with yellow hair and white skin. Academics today believe that Percy may have only observed an albino native child, as albinism is common among Native American peoples. But another leader of this later settlement effort, which would result in the settling of Jamestown, would reportedly find even more compelling evidence regarding the fate of the Roanoke colonists. According to at least one extant account of his adventures, John Smith, governor of Jamestown Colony, reportedly heard from Pocahontas' father, Chief Powhatan, of the Roanoke colonists' massacre. This was an allegedly first-hand account, as the chief claimed to have been present at their slaughter, and even supposedly showed Smith evidence, a musket barrel, a mortar, and some ironwork. This tale derives from a note apparently added to surviving accounts by compiler Samuel Purchase in his 1625 Purchase His Pilgrimage. Samuel Purchase was a dyed-in-wool Native American hater, who blamed the failure of all colonies on native treachery and argued for the forcible seizure of all native lands by the English. His claim is therefore extremely suspect, especially since John Smith never reported this himself. And elsewhere, Purchase clearly reported that Smith sought to uncover the fate of those left behind 
at Sir Walter Raleigh's colony and, quote, could learn nothing of them but that they were dead, end quote. So what did Smith himself report? In his own writings, John Smith claimed that Chief Powhatan told him that there were, quote, certain men at a place called Okanahan clothed like me, end quote. In other words, he knew of a place where people dressed in European clothes. Smith mentions in some of his reports the failed attempts of Jamestown settlers to locate these people in European apparel. And it's difficult to tell how much stock to place in Smith's writings, known as he was for romanticizing his adventures, such as he did with his account of Powhatan's daughter, Pocahontas, rescuing him from captivity. Some later reports appeared from the London Company, claiming there was intelligence that the survivors of Roanoke were rumored to have been near Jamestown and had left other carvings in trees to mark their path. But these reports also are suspect since the London Company had a vested interest in pretending colonial efforts were more successful and less risky than they really were. So despite all of these reports, historians remain uncertain as to the fate of the lost colonists. And this mystery, this blind spot in history, endures. Historians have developed competing theories about their fate, some favoring the colonists' massacre and others involving passage inland and integration into native tribes. None are proven with any certainty. One of the most intriguing theories remains that the colonists did indeed flee to Croatoan Island, now called Hatteras Island, where Mantio's tribe, the erstwhile allies of the English, accepted them and integrated them into the tribe. Indeed, at the dawn of the 18th century, English explorer John Lawson wrote of a tribe he called the Hatteras that had supposedly once lived on those islands and had settled in the eastern reaches of mainland North Carolina. These natives he described as having fair skin and gray eyes. They claimed to have white forebears and appeared to be familiar with such European customs as writing and reading or making paper speak, as they expressed it. In fact, this tribe appears to have had a tradition that they were the descendants of the lost colony. And in 1880, referring to themselves as Croatans, they claimed as much in their petition to the U.S. government for aid. Moreover, the Ethnological Bureau appears to have given weight to their claims, and one Hamilton McMillan investigating for himself found that the Croatans wore beards had English surnames, and incredibly, spoke a pure form of Old Anglo-Saxon. The claims of this tribe alone cannot prove anything, though, without DNA evidence, especially since espousing the claim brought them government assistance. But an archaeological dig on Hatteras has also turned up some European artifacts that may point to the colonists' relocation there. A brass signet ring, a rapier, and a slate with English lettering on it. Unfortunately, though, archaeologists have been unable to prove that their finds belonged to Roanoke colonists, as such items may have been carried there by later colonists, or may have come into native possession through trade. 
This uncertainty has marked all archaeological investigations into the lost colony. There is even significant uncertainty surrounding the actual locations of the fort and settlement on Roanoke. In 2012, a new discovery was touted as a breakthrough, and it was like something out of national treasure. A map of the area drawn by Governor John White, perhaps one of the very maps he'd recovered from his ransacked chests, was discovered to have a diamond-shaped symbol hidden beneath a patch, a symbol that may have represented the location of a planned fort. While at first it seemed maybe he had covered it because it had only been the planned location for a fort they had never succeeded in building, it was further discovered that even on top of the patch, the symbol of a fort had been drawn in urine as a kind of invisible ink. Considering that White's plan was for the colonists to abandon Roanoke and head 50 miles inland if they were attacked, it seemed reasonable to assume that the site marked on the map, called Site X, located on Albemarle Sound, could be a likely location to search for clues. Indeed, a team has been digging up Native American pottery in that vicinity since 2006 and has uncovered more than a dozen artifacts of apparently English provenance. But again, the shards of English pottery found cannot be conclusively proven to have originated from the Roanoke colonists, as the ceramics may have come into native possession through trades, and there was later European colonial presence in the same area. After all is said and done, with support for more than one competing theory, we are left with no clear sense of what really happened to the dares and the rest of the colonists. Virginia Dare came into the world as both a person and a symbol. The first English child born in the New World, she thus came to represent many things to many people. She was a symbol of hope and rebirth, emblematic of the human spirit of exploration and adventure, as much as of British expansionism and colonial exploitation and she has since passed into folklore as an icon of American history, representative of American independence and bravery. As a child, she is a figure of innocence and virtue, and as a woman, a remarkable and empowering character. It's no surprise that Virginia Dare's myth grew slowly over time. The first treatment of the Roanoke debacle was a Jacobean satirical play by Ben Johnson and others, titled Eastward Ho, in which characters naively imagine the Roanoke colonists had so mingled with the natives that there was now, quote, a whole country of English, end quote, across the Atlantic. Then during the ensuing centuries, most history books wrote off the Roanoke colonists as slaughtered by natives. But in the 1830s, historian George Bancroft romanticized them and the national origin myth was born. In 1837, dramatist Eliza Lainsford Cushing fictionalized Virginia Dare as an adventurous girl raised by natives. In 1840, a novel by Cornelia Tuthill had her marrying a Jamestown colonist. An 1892 novel by E.A.B. Shackelford had her keeping company with Pocahontas. An epic poem of 1907 had her magically transformed by a Native American shaman into a white doe. Further literary treatments of her in 1908 and 1930 connected her again to Pocahontas, 
one presenting Dare as Pocahontas' mother, and another suggesting she was Pocahontas' rival for John Smith's affections. And so on, through the years, Virginia Dare has survived, never long gone from the pages of literature and popular fiction. And while archaeologists on Roanoke, Hatteras, and Albemarle Sound have continuously failed to turn up definite pieces of evidence about what happened to the colonists, others have claimed to have discovered definitive proof about the fates of Eleanor, Ananias, and Virginia Dare. But is this just more myth-making? Find out in part two of The Lost Colony, The Dare Stones, which I originally released in 2017. And as you listen on to other older episodes, remember that the audio quality, my cadence and delivery, my research, and the background music mix all continue to improve as the podcast goes on. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. You can find blog posts for each episode on historicalblindness.com that contain a transcript, related imagery, and citations for further reading. Typically here at the end of the episode is when I thank partner patrons on Patreon by name and give them a special message. So if you're interested in financially supporting the program and being thanked at the end of every episode, consider pledging $10 or more a month on Patreon or you can get access to the ad-free feed and exclusive episodes for as little as a buck. Some music on this episode is by Kai Ingle. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or by making a one-time donation on PayPal. Find those links in the show notes or find me on Venmo at historical blindness. Until next time, remember, history does still offer some genuine mysteries that have yet to be resolved. Even when there are two or three competing resolutions, when there is no scholarly consensus in favor of one of them, we may still consider it an unknown. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.